like to talk. That's why it's called book talk, etc. <laughs> Welcome to Book Talk, etc., a podcast bound to grow your TBR. I'm Tina from TBR, etc. And I'm Renee from It's Book Talk. This is a conversational podcast about books and more from two Midwest mood readers who are easily distracted by new releases. Today, we're talking about all things nonfiction. We'll share something that we've been loving lately, review our latest read, and since it's the end of nonfiction November, we'll have book talk about a few of our nonfiction reads and why we love reading true stories, true crime, and more. We'll wrap things up with our shelf edition. If you enjoy listening, we'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have a quick minute, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing us on social media. It truly helps us connect with other book lovers. Hey, Tina. Hi, Renee. How are you? Great. Doing very well today. As you just said, it's Saturday. Mm-hmm. Saturday. So. We're having a long chat today because we're going to record something for Patreon right after this. So we're about to spend several hours together. So buckle up. Yes. <laughs> Lots of talking, which only you and I would get this. Ex- like I was preparing and I, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much book talk. And I could not be more excited. Oh, I know. We got, we got <laughs> definitions for you. We've got data. So let's, let's jump into it. I mean, do you have anything else to share for your for your week? I want to tell you, thank you so much for having us in Ohio. We just yes, met for the first true. time. I know. Yeah, this is our first time recording since you guys were here. Yes, first time recording since we visited. My husband, my daughter, and I visited Renee and her husband, and they were so nice to host us. We, <laughs> I could have stayed an entire week. We had the best time. I'm sure they would have, you know, eventually uh, sent us on our way, but it was so <laughs> nice. And it was nice to see you in person. I, I feel like we're exactly, like you're exactly who I thought you were, but it's always different when you meet somebody face to face. Right. You are too. I think that I, I immediately within an hour of you being here, I was like, oh my gosh, you're exactly, you're exactly like you are, except even better. I think we just hit it off even more in person. And I was thinking about you today because as like we just said, it's Saturday and last Saturday it was so nice and we got to go outside and we had so much fun. And today it's cold, cold, cold. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of stuck inside, but I'm so glad we had that day to do our nerdy library trip. And we just had, it was so much fun. It was so fun. And I feel like it was, we kind of could recognize like, okay, get this is the last nice day for a very long time. Yes. So you better enjoy it. We walked across this river. It was very, very nice. So I just it was wanted a great to- day bring that to the to the show and say thank you. Yes. So, I'm going to share my loving lately. Mine is something that I think both Renee and I will love because it is related to Bachelor Nation. And oh. my loving lately is an Instagram account. Actually, it's a person. Her name is Ashley and her handle is Ash Talks Batch on Instagram. What she does is provide commentary on the show The Bachelor and, of course, The Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise. And she also has a blog. And basically, she comments on the show and the contestants. But what she does so well is that she brings her perspective as a Black woman. If you follow Bachelor Nation at all or The Bachelor, you know it's undergone a little bit of an overhaul in the past two years. A very, very necessary overhaul. 
But it included the termination of the former host, Chris Harrison, after he made some racially insensitive comments about a previous contestant. So they brought in two former bachelorettes to now host in his stead. But what Ashley does so well is bring context to the things that I might otherwise not see. For example, she's lately talking about our current bachelorette, whose name is Michelle, about how despite being super gorgeous, very successful, very kind, why it is that she has so many fewer Instagram followers than even the last Bachelorette, Katie, and some of the other people that weren't even the leads of the show. And she just basically makes me take pause and think, huh, okay, could it be that we're just saturated on, you know, having back-to-back seasons? Or is it because she is a Black lead and there's people that maybe don't want to follow her because of that? She just gives us a very unique, She gives us a very thoughtful perspective and explains things super well. And I appreciate her taking the time and like the emotional labor to point this out to folks, even like myself. I think if you want to have more conversations about race, if you are interested in the show, this is definitely an account that you should take a look at. I find her really refreshing. And this is Ashley from Ash Talks Batch on Instagram. Oh, that's a great. That's Batch. B-A-C-H. Not like Batch of Cookies or whatever. Oh, yes. Good. We will definitely link to her. Indeed. Yes. As soon as you said that, though, about Michelle having less followers, my first thought was she's a normal person who came also from the real world. She's a teacher. And sometimes leads who are normal and not in like there for social media fame and all of that tend to also get less followers, which but I, I agree that there could be more to it than that as well. Oh, for sure. But that's a good point. And I actually quite like this. And Ashley kind of made this point first. And I thought that is so true. Michelle, the lead, her kind of take to social media is I'm just here so I don't get fined. She just has like, I don't know, 25 or 30 posts that are loosely related to the show. But you're right. It seems like she's genuinely there to find love, to find somebody. She's a teacher. She's still Mm -hmm. teaching as her season is airing. Like she's still in the classroom teaching little kids. So it just anyway, I really enjoy her and I I wish her the best as as though she cares about what I think about her. But (laughs) I know. But but you and I also message during the show. Oh, every and Mm -hmm. we want the best. We really do want the best for her. And we we need to whittle down these guys. Yes. Mm-hmm. I need uh, to get more information. Uh huh. So, I need mm-hmm. better dates. I need get, to get deeper. I want to have more conversation. So I exactly. think they're getting there. Anyway, exactly. thanks for indulging us on Bachelor Corner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My loving lately this week is something that my hairstylist introduced me to at my hair appointment this week. And it's called Elenge. I will definitely link to that. It's L apostrophe A-N-G-E. And it's a two-in-one volumizing brush dryer. Ooh. This is brand new. She's never used this. And she told me she just discovered it. But it's a hair dryer and a gigantic round brush all in one. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And I'm going to order one for myself now. I mean, it's super easy. It's, It's three heat settings. It looks like it would be kind of bulky and heavy. It is very, very light. It's great for thick, curly hair if you want to straighten, which is me, uh, or fine, thin hair. It has other heat settings. Oh, nice. For that. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very, I mean, that's it. That's, I ordered it for myself. Where did you get it from? It's a little pricey. I, so she sent me a link to the actual company, which okay. is Elange. 
I'm going to put that link up for everyone here, hopefully, because I, because this is, there's a little bit of lag and when we're recording and when this is going to air, um, I was able to use that link and there was a discount, there's a discount running, but I bet there always is. So yeah. I was able to get it for $79. Oh, which that's and not, free with yeah. free shipping. Uh-uh, yeah, that's not bad that's at all. Not, okay. I think it might've been like maybe regularly 119, mm-hmm. but I have to blow dry with a, with a hair dryer and a big round brush uh-huh. and section my hair. Oh yeah. And it's just, I think this is going to be great and time saving and maybe shoulder saving. Right. <laughs> so a lot easier. Um, yeah. I don't know. I like it. I want to bring that and it's Elange volumizing brush dryer. Nice. I'm glad you got that. I, your hair is very thick, so I can see that being a, a nice time saver. I hope so. I think it will be. Of course, you know how hairstylists can work their magic, and then I'll probably get it and be like, I don't even know how she did that. Yeah, I'm sure there's a learning curve, but I bet it's, I bet oh, you can do it. Hmm. Yeah, now that you said that, actually, she sent me a, uh, a link for a Facebook video tutorial nice. on how to use this. And nice. so I will also post that. I'm glad you reminded me to Perfect. say that. Perfect. There you go. All right. Okay. Do you want to share your latest read? We are moving on. Moving right along, baby. Moving. All right. Yes, I do want to share my latest read. My, okay. I'm just looking, I'm laughing because I'm looking at and thinking about all the titles I'm bringing today. I, I, I didn't mean for them to all be a little heavier-ish, but oh, here, okay. you know, here we are. I read what I read and I guess I am who I am. But my first read or my latest read is Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. And the tagline is, in America, demons wear white hoods. This one came out last October, and I didn't realize it, but it's a novella because only about 176 pages. This is in between a few genres, kind of historical fiction, definite fantasy elements, and definite horror elements. This book was pretty out there, but I really enjoyed it. This is very, very fast-paced. And when I said I was surprised it was a novella because it didn't feel like the development was stunted at all. It felt like I got a full story in the 176 pages. And what it does, it blends the historical and supernatural as it revisits the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror in the Jim Crow South. So the book itself takes place in 1915, right as the movie The Birth of a Nation came out, which in real life stoked the fires of outright racism and led to a sudden spike in Klan members. In this book, in the world that's built in this book, some of the Klan members are literal monsters. And what gets them there is enough hatred, they turn into actual monsters. But the key is only some people can tell and see that they're these monsters. And they basically go across the U.S. and spread their fear and their violence and get everybody worked up and incite all of these different things. But standing in their way is Marise Bordeaux. She is a woman and along with her fellow resistance fighters are tasked with hunting these monsters before they can hurt anybody else. So you have Marise, whose weapon of choice is a magical sword. You have Chef, who is a former soldier and bomb specialist. And Sadie, an outspoken sharpshooter. And again, they're given the task to hunt these creatures because they can see them. And they go after the monsters, and their goal, of course, is to get them out of here and to send them back to hell. And it's up to them to stop the clan before it ends the world. So it sounds like there's a lot going on. And in some ways there was, but it was very easy to follow. It was very fast-paced and quite gory. One of these monsters, 
I'm still picturing it. it. It plays on a very specific fear of mine, and it was super gross. DM me if you want me to tell you what it is, but I don't want to spoil it. I will say I listened to this. The audio was remarkable. The narrator is Chaney Waits, and she turned it out. This was a performance. I cannot imagine reading this with my eyes. She used a lot of different voices to really bring these characters to life. And what I thought was so interesting is that the author gives great historical context mixed in with these elements of horror. So you're reading about the Tulsa race riots in this magical world, but that really happened. And it just goes to show you how close to a monstrosity these clan marches really were and how blurry the line of horror and history can be. And I should mention that even with all of that was going on, the history, the fantasy, the action, the horror, the author still managed to give us characters to root for. I was all in on their story and I loved the three main women. And there were also a couple moments of humor thrown in to bring it up a little bit. So I was up, I was down, I was scared, I was sad. It was all over the place. But I'm telling you, this was a very nice surprise. This book was Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. Wow. And all in 176 pages? Exactly. Wow. Right. Which is why yeah. I, I was reading, you know, about the book when I was preparing and it said novella. And I'm like, surely not. What do you mean? Novella? Like, Maybe I just don't know what a novella is. I, I mean, I know they're short, but I haven't read a ton. And I mm-hmm. guess I, I was just so surprised that he was able to pack all of this in, in that compact story. It was really good. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were describing it. Yeah. Okay. All right. What's your latest read? Okay. My latest read is also an excellent audio production. It's The Other Americans by Layla Lalami. This is a timely and powerful novel about the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant. It's billed as a family saga, a murder mystery, and a love story. It was all those things. And of course, the family saga and the murder mystery is what pulled me in. I have had this in my library stack for months and months, and I got a notification that said, you have no more renewals (laughs) for this book. So I was like, oh, all right. That just moved to the top of my TBR. Because I wanted to read it. So I decided, even though I have the print copy, uh, you know, I always check to see if I can get the audio and I could. And turns out this is a full cast narration. Mm -hmm. Really. Okay. Which is really, really good. But also there is a lot of characters. So I'll tell you what it was about. Set in California, late one spring night, a Moroccan immigrant named Driss is walking across a darkened intersection when he is killed by a speeding car. The repercussions of his death bring together a diverse cast of characters. Driss's daughter, Nora, a jazz composer who returns to the small town she thought she left for good. His widow, Miriam, who still pines after her life in Morocco. Efran, an undocumented witness whose fear of deportation prevents him from coming forward. Jeremy, an old friend of Nora's and an Iraq war veteran. Coleman, a detective who is slowly discovering her son's secrets, and Anderson, a neighbor trying to reconnect with his family, and Driss himself narrates. So that is a lot of characters, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is excellent for a full, and everybody had their own narrator. Nice. So I really, really, really liked that because everybody brought their own accent to a a lot of the language and uh, it was really good. 
but also with all those characters, sometimes I, and I'm listening, I was like, uh, wait a minute. Whose perspective? Did you have, did you have to I, bump it down to like one and a half? I bumped it down to 1.8. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I did. Because I, sometimes it would start and it wasn't even the accent necessarily. It was there. I had to like get back in tune with who was now telling the story and where are we in that? But man, such good narration. And okay. So not only was I involved in trying to find out what happened, because it's clear that Driss was purposely hit and he, he had a family, he had his own restaurant. He, he was an upstanding citizen. However, some things came out later and there was little by little, the author brought out layers of secrets that lots of these people were having. And all of that kind of came together to create a story that I was very much into. Nora narrates the bulk of a lot, like her sections were longer and deeper. And I'll tell you about my thoughts on that here in a second. But I do think that this would make a great book club selection because the themes in here that the author does such a good job of intertwining is immigration, undocumentation, what parents will or won't do for their children. And what I really liked, the often fraught relationship between mothers and daughters, because Nora, oh, it was so good with Nora and her mom, lots of unfinished business there. And I thought she did a really good job with that. So there is a resolution. I didn't have it figured out, which I was happy about. But in the end, so when I finished it, I was like, man, I really, really liked that. So what is keeping me from saying I loved it? And I, I spent a few days thinking about it. And I think I wanted more from Nora's character. I don't think the author took her deep enough. I think we could have gotten more plot and more story and more feeling from her. And and that's just my only critique of this story because I really, really liked it. I just think there was a little bit too much showing when it came to her, or I'm sorry, too much telling Mm -hmm. and not enough showing. Right. Which is kind of a minor critique, but um, that's what's keeping me from saying I loved it to I really, really liked it. And that was The Other Americans by Layla Lalami. Great bring. I've never heard of this book before. And didn't you say that Nora narrates the bulk of it? Well, her sections are longer. Her sections are so longer. So she gets more she gets more time. We get more we get way more time with Nora. And yet she was under de- not underdeveloped, yes, but yeah, exactly. underdeveloped. Okay. Yes. I felt like I knew, for example, Efran. He's the undocumented witness. And what a dilemma that is for him. Right. Because he saw. Right. Or he thinks he saw what like the accident, but he's afraid to come forward, which so there's a whole that that whole I felt like I knew him a little bit more than I even knew Nora. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, and I can it, see why it, that would like pull it, it won't allow you to be like, yes, I loved it. Full five stars. If, if you're like, ah, you're almost there, though. But it still sounds like it was a good but it was book. really, really good. I do. I think this was an, a finalist for the National Book Award for Ooh. 2019. Fun yeah. fact. Excuse me. Yes. Fancy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know me. I like to go back and, and do a little research on the author and 
in the books because I really did. I love this type of audio production mm-hmm. and I really like this. I like this type of story a lot. Well, good. Book are you, talk. Are you ready for book talk? We are rounding out November. I know. Can you believe it? More, oh yes, some more nonfiction. I mean, after our memoir, mm-hmm. we're going to do a little bit more nonfiction. We wanted to bring a little more depth, I think, to our nonfiction chat. Memoir was super fun, but we also thought, okay, there's so much to cover in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to go a little bit deeper with that. And when we say nonfiction, what that means, it's literature based in fact. It is the broadest category of literature, and it can include biography, business, cooking, health and fitness, pets, crafts. Travel, home improvement, self-help, true crime, the list goes on and on. There's truly so many subcategories Mm -hmm. within nonfiction. And we wanted to pick this again because it's technically nonfiction November, which is a, I don't know, kind of a holiday, if you will, within the book community (laughs) where a lot of readers decide to really dig in on some nonfiction titles. At least for me, I find that nonfiction tends to sit on my TBR a really long time. Like, I'll see something that sounds really good, and then it just stays there on my TBR. What about you? Yeah. Well, I would have said I I feel like I read quite a bit of nonfiction, but then when I tallied up my numbers for this year, I've read 15 out of 90, 15 out of my 92 books so far are nonfiction. Okay. That's 16%, which doesn't seem like a lot, but I thought I had read more than that. Yeah. Well, I'm not much better. So far this year, I have read 111 books as of this recording. And of those, I had 20 that were nonfiction. So I'm at about 18%. Okay. Pretty low. Does it feel, does it, it does feel low, but then, so I thought I had read more, which Mm -hmm. means because what I have read, I've really almost completely, for the most part, except for one, loved. Loved. So maybe it stands out as, High because they're such high quality. Yeah, that really right? could be it. And they're very memorable, I mm-hmm. find. Like, I find nonfiction when I get to them very memorable. I did a lot of nonfiction in the beginning of the year. I literally spent probably three months in the middle of the year not reading nonfiction. I was just <laughs> scroll. I was like, where are the nonfiction? So I skipped a bunch of months where I just did not have any, probably in the summer. That makes sense for me. I don't tend to, I don't know, get drawn toward that in the summer months. But then recently I've read a few in part because of this episode, but also just in general, I knew nonfiction November was coming. Yeah, you're right. I don't know that I read that many in the summer, but definitely in the spring and in the fall. So do you think that you ever say to yourself, I'm in the mood for nonfiction? No, never. (laughs) Okay. So how do they, how do they come across your path? So typically it is going to be a memoir I hear about me memoir to me is like in my wheelhouse. Like that's not even not, I don't even think of that in my brain as nonfiction. Like it doesn't equate like, Oh, I'm going to shoot for a nonfiction. If I memoir just goes on my list, like any other book might, or if I'm hearing a lot about it, for example, Dave Grohl's memoir, I saw a few people say, Oh my God, this was incredible. I was like done sold. I have to have it because I knew I wanted to read that specific one. I like the idea of reading nonfiction. I never act on it. Very, I shouldn't say never. Obviously I do, but very rarely do I act on it. Okay. What about you? Well, I think I don't usually say I'm in the mood for nonfiction. Sometimes, sometimes I might, if it's crime related, 
or I might kind of do a little Googling or seek out something that is a true crime. Mm-hmm. Not, not that often. I really just come across them on Instagram or Facebook now and think like, oh, that sounds interesting or someone recommends it or I am listening to a podcast that happens a lot. And then someone will mention a nonfiction or I'm listening to an author or someone like Oprah or Brene Brown, and they say they have a new book, then I'll I'll definitely get those books. There's certain people that I regularly buy their nonfiction books. That makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a very, very hard time with books that are considered like self-help or self-improvement. And not even, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just never, I don't even know where to start. I have no clue in life what like self-help or self-improvement book might be for me. In my brain, I think about the genre and I feel like, oh my gosh, it's so saturated. I don't know which books would actually help me, which actually would make sense for me. And some of them, I honestly feel like they're such a cash grab. Not all of them. I'm not saying all of them, but some of them Mm -hmm. I think, oh, you know, some old white dude's like, yeah, I'm totally successful in business. Here are my eight steps, you know, drink more water and this and that. (laughs) Like I want to find the books that are, I guess, written for me, but I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Well, I know. And you have to filter, I guess, it is one of the things like I, I have those trusted sources like mm-hmm. Oprah and um, there's a couple other podcasts and I'm blanking on the name. Drew, I'll have to get it and put it in the show notes, but oh, the Broken Brain podcast. Mm-hmm. He's really, really good. And he interviews quite a lot of other authors with self-improvement books. And that that is where, that is exactly where I've gotten a few that have sounded good to me on his podcast. And then I go and check them out usually on audio. And that's another thing. I love nonfiction on audio. Mm -hmm. I really love it. Me too. So I found a lot of books that way. It's not like it's something for me that nonfiction is like, wow, this blew my mind. It's, it's going to be on my top reads of the year. That occasionally happens with like, maybe you should talk to someone. Right, right. That that book will always be one of my very favorites. But usually I end up finishing the book and I think, okay, I want to remember this and this from that book. And then that's it. So I learned something, take it with me. And it was useful overall. Yeah. And sometimes that's enough. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I need, I don't need to restructure my entire life. You know, and I don't expect that from a book. I will say, actually, I can think of one self-improvement book I read within the last couple of years that I really liked. It was Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies. Yes, from, I read that. From Tara Schuster. Mwah. Loved that book. And she's mm-hmm. a young woman kind of in my age range. And it felt like, oh, but like, yeah, you can't this. You can just go for a run around the block. Like just you can do that in your day to day. Like you can mm-hmm. find time for that. I really, really enjoyed that book. I'm not bringing that today, but you're, it just kind of jogged my memory. That's probably the only one I've read in the last several years. I know I've read one on Brene Brown. Her books never feel like self-improvement. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the key. It's right. just like she's just so smart and engaging. I'm like, just tell me what you want to tell me and I'll listen type thing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and on the flip side of self-improvement is true crime, which we like, right? I do like true crime. And it's, I was thinking about it when I was looking through my picks, like, boy, I rarely read true crime, nonfiction, full books. Mm-hmm. I have only read a handful. I like true crime podcasts. I like true crime YouTube channels. 
but I don't read a lot of true crime nonfiction. Okay. I do here and there. Usually they'll catch my eye, but I do think my sweet spot is psychology based mm-hmm. self-improvement. I really, really like that. Narrative nonfiction. I, yes. We talked about that. We both really like that. Yes. And narrative nonfiction, meaning it is creative nonfiction. It's considered creative nonfiction or literary nonfiction. And it's a true story written in the style of a fiction novel. And mm-hmm. that is why those particular books are so appealing. Example, In Cold Blood. Yep. Did you read that one? I did. Mm-hmm. I did too. That was really good. I had to look it up when I saw it in the notes. I'm like, that's not nonfiction. What do you mean? I knew it was based on, but then I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they did such a good job with like telling a story that I didn't even realize it was nonfiction. Right. Yeah. That was a good one. So Here's the interesting fun fact, because you know me, I have to bring one. Yes. We always think of fiction, right? A fiction as, well, we do. We love fiction. And sometimes when you're thinking about nonfiction, it doesn't feel like something you might immediately pick up because when we read, we often read to be entertained and to be like transported to another world and out of our own lives. And for me, sometimes reading nonfiction means it can sometimes feel like it's a school assignment or like you're learning and Mm -hmm. learning, which I like to do, but it's not always entertaining. So I've pulled up this article that said, surprisingly, the first quarter of 2021, adult nonfiction is selling at a higher rate than any other genre except juvenile fiction. Wow. Any other genre? Yes. In the first quarter of 2021, selling at a 24% higher rate. Wow. And that's a significant amount too. Higher. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? You think it's the new year, new me kind of people? Oh, good. I hadn't thought about that. I bet you're right. I bet that's what it is. By the way, that is me. I am that. (laughs) Like, I'm not knocking it. Like, hi, that is me. Yes. I bet that's it. That makes sense. I bet you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. But interesting because I know I don't think nonfiction is as popular Mm -hmm. as fiction. Yeah. When you had said what your favorite types of nonfiction to read are, mine, I do like the idea of psychology-based self-improvement. Again, I have not read a ton. I would love to get more into that, especially considering my psych background. Like I would love to dig in and really find some good ones. I love memoir. You know that. I love social justice books. That's probably Mm -hmm. my number one nonfiction that I read. I'm I'm thinking Stamped by Ibram X. Kendi. Those types of books I love to listen to, and I listen to them during the day. Like when I'm working, sometimes I like to have something going on in the background so that I can focus, and that tends to be, not in the background, but my brain's partially listening to a nonfiction book like that and also doing some of the lighter stuff at work. That's my absolute favorite when I can get in that mode. I also really like celebrity memoir, and I like essays a lot too, but that you know, that tracks probably, you probably know that about me by now. Okay. That helps because when you said social justice, I think criminal justice, but those Mm. are different things. Those are different. And Mm -hmm. I know for me, I love the the criminal justice Mm -hmm. aspect of the nonfiction. Mm -hmm. That is another, I know that that's another one I forgot to mention, but I really, really enjoy that. So that makes sense also as to why 
I know you're still going to read The Sun Does Shine Mm -hmm. and I'm going to hound you about it. Uh (laughs) I have a couple titles that I'm going to share that are high on my nonfiction TBR. And I feel like if I say them in the world, then it's like, okay, you have to read these like very soon. Okay. I promise you here and now within the next, what, six months. Give me some time. I will read The Sun Does Shine. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Please. I know. Well, I'm going to. I don't hound you about much, but I really. (laughs) It's true. I just. I really want you to read that. Fine. Only if you read the next, my first book that I'm going to bring for this list. Okay. All right. What is it? Are you ready to get into it? All right. I'm ready. Okay. My first book is A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom by Brittany K. Barnett. Yeah, this is it. This, you, you must, this, you will love this. Like, there's no question that you will love this book. I read it in late 2020, and it was truly one of my favorites of the year. It's one of those perspective-changing books that you remember when you read it. You remember what you were up to when you were reading it. This is what it's about. Brittany K. Barnett is a lawyer. She is also the daughter of a formerly incarcerated woman and the one-time girlfriend of an abusive drug dealer. When she was in law school, she came across the case of Sharanda Jones, a single mother and business owner who became a casualty in America's ruthless war on drugs. Sharanda had been taken from her young daughter's life and was serving a life sentence without parole for a first-time drug offense. Brittany studied Sharanda's case and began to understand just how deeply embedded racial injustice in the United States criminal justice system is, and she became moved by her story and developed a friendship with her, got to know her as a person, And though Brittany initially just intended to work in corporate law, she pivots a bit. By day, when she's a lawyer, she works in moves billion-dollar corporate deals. But by night, she becomes obsessed with doing pro bono work to try and free Sharanda and others like her in these near-impossible legal battles by night. She's dedicating her life to standing up for those who had been unfairly incarcerated for minor drug crimes. What's really cool about this book is she shares a lot of her own journey. She talks about when she was a kid visiting her mom in prison because, again, her mom was a nurse and she just happened to have a crack addiction um, that would come in and out. And eventually she got incarcerated for it. But Brittany's just so thoughtful. She's also very young. I don't I think she's younger than I am. So the fact that she's accomplished this much isn't incredible. So I love that she shares her own journey, but then also ties in the stories of three of her clients. In the stories of three of her clients, she explores their lives, their crimes, their families, and their jail time with a ton of care and compassion. Never did I feel like she was judging these people for what happened to them. And she really just focuses on the storytelling. So what she does when Barack Obama was president, she petitions to get these folks freed. And she was able to get seven people freed before he left office and granted clemency before he left in 2016. Currently, she's founded two nonprofits, the Buried Alive Project, which works to dismantle life without parole sentences handed down under federal drug laws, and Girls Embracing Mothers, dedicated to empowering girls with mothers in prison. We'll link to those in the show notes. I just think this book was outstanding. It's a story, but it's also, it's, it's, motivating. It really was inspirational and made me think, okay, I need to do something. I want to get involved. I can't recommend it highly enough. And I really think it deserves more attention. This book is A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom by Brittany K. Barnett. And I also wanted to 
Shout out Jamise at Spines Vines for her chat with Brittany. We'll get a link to that and share it in the show notes. I watched this Instagram live and it was a great conversation. And again, it just really solidified how impressive she is. So that's my okay. recommendation. Wow. Yes. I know about this book. I don't know why I haven't read it yet. Because there's no reason. too many books in the world. <laughs> I know, but this is exactly in my wheelhouse and I will definitely read it. So you have to, you'll read mine. I'll read yours and we'll be back to talk about them. Exactly. Just like we did with point. our fall books, our fall spooky TBR books. Exactly. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. That's going to be, that's going to be a good one. Tell All me right. about yours. My first book is exactly in my wheelhouse as well. And, you know, I love missing people, a missing person story. Yes. It will get me every time. And this is called The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands by John Billman. Okay, this is an in-depth look at people who vanish in the wilderness without a trace and the eccentric, determined people who try to find them. So, I mean, it's it's two parts, but it really is people who go into the, to national forests and vanish. I mean, I didn't realize the amount of times this happens. So what this book is really about, these are stories that defy conventional logic. The proverbial vanished without a trace incidences, which happen a lot more in a lot closer to your backyard than almost anyone thinks. These are the missing whose situations are the hardest on loved ones left behind. The cases that are an embarrassment for park superintendents, rangers, and law enforcement charged with search and rescue. The ones that baffle the volunteers who comb the mountains, woods, and badlands. So what he has done is he takes one particular story. The Cold Vanish is a fascinating look into the stories of thousands who've gone missing in America's national parks with a specific focus in this story on Jacob Gray, a 22-year-old biker who went missing in Olympic National Park in 2017. The author covers Jacob's story start to finish, and there is a conclusion surrounding Jacob's disappearance. Interspersed throughout the story, throughout Jacob's story, are the stories of many others who've gone running, biking, hiking, in or near national parks and vanished without a trace. I was riveted and haunted by each of these stories. What I found especially fascinating were the stories of those who vanished for days, but then shockingly were found. There was literally one story where someone vanished for days and days and walked out from the exact trail where they vanished and it had already been searched endlessly searched and the person walked out the same place they had went in. Where'd they been? She didn't remember. Oh, okay. It, I, I, when I tell you these stories, I mean crazy. So the circumstances surrounding these people's stories are mind boggling and yes, defy logical reason. I suggest reading this with an open mind and be prepared to hear things that may seem quite far-fetched, but as the author brilliantly highlights, when it comes to finding those missing in miles upon miles of forests and rivers, there is no such thing as far-fetched. I personally learned so much while reading, and I did alternate the print with the audio, and I thought the narration was excellent. I will say, 
The writing did seem to lose momentum in the last quarter of the book. I'm not sure why. It just, it felt a little detail heavy and repetitive. That's the only critique I really have of this. Really, really fascinating, especially if you like missing person stories. That was The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands by John Billman. Yeah, this sounds right up your alley. One. <laughs> but I'm glad it, it worked. I'm glad it worked. And I'm glad you mentioned keep an open mind because, you know, that was my first question. I'm like, where was she? What do you mean? Like, where was she? Right. Well, and it also and that also means some of the ways that they go about finding these people, you, you got to keep an open mind. What some of the techniques that are used are what might be considered a little woo-woo out there. Oh, like a psychic, okay. maybe. Like a psychic, mm-hmm. some other ritual. Like I mean, they kind of tossed anything they could at yeah. the wall and hoped that something would help them find these people. And a lot of these people are never, ever found. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I can't imagine. No. Well, you know that Jonathan's a I, forest this, cop. Yeah. I wonder what he would think about this book. I know. You'll have to... Let us know, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, read it and see what you think. I mean, it's a, it's a big job for, I mean, I had no idea. I've never been to any of our national forests. No, so I haven't either. The amount of area to cover is incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, do you want to take a sharp left into serial killer town? <laughs> okay. Yes, let's do. <laughs> All right. So my next book is My Friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf. This was my very first graphic novel, and I'm feeling very proud of myself for having read one. This book got on my radar a very long time ago. I must have seen the cover. I saw somebody talking about it, and I thought, wow, this is so interesting. Because I, of course, knew Jeffrey Dahmer, of course, was mildly interested in his story. What I did not realize was that this book was written by someone who knew him. Now, looking at the title, like, hello, duh, it's called My Friend Dahmer. Literally, this person was his friend. But I didn't make that connection until I started reading. The author, Durf is his name, was a high school acquaintance of Jeffrey Dahmer. It was absolutely fascinating and shocking to read about him as a young man just because he was in class, just doing the things that normal freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors do in high school. Now, not totally normal. This was high school in the 70s, and it's Dahmer. So obviously he has some personality disorder going on. You know, and then you have a kid like kind of teasing him. It's just so strange to think about somebody that's so notorious in this very mundane, common space. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, the book takes place in the late 70s when Dahmer, or Jeff as he was known by them, was in high school. The author chronicles their high school years from records that he had access to. He also interviewed people that knew him and from his own memories. By 1991, The World Knows Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most infamous serial killers of all time, but the author saw Jeff as much more of a complex figure. He was a high school acquaintance who he spent time with in classrooms, in hallways, in car rides, like they went places together. And the stories depict how damaged Dahmer was as a young man and how back then people just dismissed it as him being weird. Oh, well, that's just Dahmer. He's just a weird kid. He had this thing that he did. I'm sure it was to get more attention and to make people laugh, but he basically would imitate somebody with a disability. And that made me super uncomfortable. 
And then I think, well, this whole book is making me uncomfortable because <laughs> he is who he is. But I just wanted to mention that piece because it happens a lot. And this novel only depicts his high school years and ends with the author getting a phone call from somebody telling him to turn on the TV that Jeff is on TV and he is a serial killer. Now, they weren't close friends. I would call it more of an acquaintance type relationship, but still they literally had spent time together. And in fact, they were reconstructing with one of his good friends the timeline and his friend had driven Jeffrey home right before he started committing murders. And they were thinking like, okay, I could have been one of his victims. So I thought this book was super original. And while the author was very clear that he no longer supports him, obviously he does not sympathize with him for what he did once he started killing. He also did a really good job of telling his story almost with compassion in that he demonstrated his struggles. The urges came from deep within. I think Dahmer was a smart person and I think he knew like, oh my God, these dark thoughts are making me insane. These are not good things. I cannot act on it. But you see him slowly start to like, okay, he was very interested in roadkill. And then all Mm. of his dad was, I think, a science teacher and you know, he got access to some chemicals and started to dissolve some animals' bones to see what was inside of them and what the bones looked like. And you can see him get darker and darker. And for a couple of years, he was a full-blown alcoholic as a teenager. He would drink 24-7, come to class, super drunk. And I think this is why the author was able to say, like, gosh, if it were today, like, there would be someone who noticed somebody would say something and maybe it would have prevented things. And it almost sounded like for a while Dahmer tried to fight his urges. Anyway, he is the killer we all know. But before that, he was the shy, goofy outsider. The art in this book was really good, too. It's very memorable. I'm super glad I read it. And this book is My Friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf. Okay, Jeffrey Dahmer was one of, when I say my earliest serial killers, because I had such a fascination in college and which would have been the early 90s. I graduated from high school in 90s. So, wow. But when you're just describing that, though, the fact that he went to school drunk, do you know what? Like immediately I thought a lot of people with any level of like thoughts, whether it's schizophrenia, sometimes when they can't get those thoughts out of their head, they'll drink or become drug users to try to kind of quiet the voices within. Exactly. I wonder if that's what he was doing. Exactly. That's what it sounds Mm -hmm. like. And at one point, his parents get this super nasty divorce and his mom moves to another state with his little brother and his dad lives in another house. So he's in high school living in his house. And it was a couple of weeks, I think, that he was alone. But like that messes with a person. And again, we're not condoning what he did, of course. But but like you think about nature versus nurture and like, all right, he was born with these urges, most likely in this this brain disorder and situations, everything lined up to where all right, it was go. And it it kind of looked like once he started to dabble, it, it was sl- slowly building. But then once he, mm-hmm. act- and it does talk about the first person that he killed, by the way, in this book, you can see like that's when the floodgates opened. Like that's when it was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wheels had fallen off the train, right. so to speak. Well, and if, if you were derf, it kind of makes sense that maybe you would try to write something someday just as a, a way to try to understand, because can you imagine being that close with someone, whether they were, I mean, it sounds like strong acquaintance acquaintances, but enough to where you dropped him off before, you know, like together, wouldn't you, wouldn't you as an adult throughout your life, try to figure out 
what did I miss or how do I process what this person was? So it kind of makes sense that he wrote something, anything. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah. It was a really thoughtful book. I really appreciated it. And it was kind okay. of quick. I mean, I've it looks long when you pick it up and hold it in your hands. Obviously, I did this in print. You have to because it's such a like. Right. You, you have know, to, right? Yeah. With a graphic novel. Yeah, absolutely. But it was it was fascinating. I'll say that. Okay, great. Thank you for bringing that. All right. What's next for you? That is a perfect segue into my next How book. How about it? Okay. And we didn't plan that. Perfect. My next book is called Savage Appetite by Ooh. Rachel Monroe. Yes. Okay. And do you remember this, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. This was the one and only book we picked up at the library yes. last week. Yeah. I'm glad I was excited because I'm, I'm, I wasn't sure how it would work. So I'm glad you, you read it. It worked great. So of course I also alternate, I was able to get the audio. So I did alternate. This is a provocative and original investigation of our cultural fascination with crime linking four archetypes, detective, victim, attorney, killer, to four true stories about women driven by obsession. This was fascinating. So what the author does, and this really is about a general look at our society's obsession with true crime, but also really specifically women, because there's been a shift over the years. And she gives a really, a lot of really interesting statistics on how women have went from not being part of the true crime world as like forensic scientists and detectives and all, and everything that has to do with crime to being now the forensic science departments and majors across, you know, all the universities are mostly women, like 70% are women in these majors and heading out into the world as forensic scientists. Wow. I know it was, it's really interesting. There's a lot of good statistics. Love it. Okay. It took me a minute to process. I'm like, really? But that, I guess that tracks. That tracks. And it's a shift. So she explains the shift. Okay. So what she does is she takes the appeal of true crime and she picks four stories. The first one is is set in the 1940s and you have a bored heiress who began creating dollhouse crime scenes depicting murders, suicides, and accidental deaths. I've heard about this lady. I am going to do a little bit of Googling. I will go ahead and link to, if I can get a picture of one of her dollhouses, I'm going to link it because she became known as the mother of forensic science. This, what started as her hobby, she ended up revolutionizing the field of forensic science and people made fun of her. Other men made fun of her. She never, ever gave up. She did come from a very wealthy family. She donated millions to Harvard for their legal department. She ended, so her dollhouses ended up being used as training devices for police and people going out to investigate crimes. It doesn't sound fascinating. I'm telling you, it was fascinating. And she was dedicated. She was so dedicated. So a lot of her houses have been, they're in a museum. So anyway, definitely a good one. The next one was about the Manson family murders. Hold on. And there was, well, and you know me, that one I skimmed. Um, Wait, why did <laughs> because, you skim that one? Well, I skimmed it because it was about the story of a, a particular young woman who became obsessed 
after the Manson family murders, she became obsessed with the Tate family. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of history about the Manson murders. I I never got into that. I've I've never been interested in that story. I've never read a book about it. I'm not interested in cults. I'm not interested in any of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested. So that one, but if you are like that one might be interesting to you. And of course she always has good statistical information to back up what she's talking about. So the third story also completely fascinating. It's about a landscape architect in Brooklyn in the mid 1990s who fell in love with a convicted murderer. And he happened to be one of the two guys convicted in the case called the West Memphis three, three guys. Duh, me too. <laughs> he was the ringleader. And I remember reading about that story, but I didn't go back and Google. I do not go Google until you're done reading this. This story was crazy, but it focused on her. She had like a wonderful life. She was, by all accounts, living her best life in Brooklyn and decided that she had this overwhelming desire to start writing to this convicted murderer. And from there, I can't like, it just, it went nuts. And she really ended up incorporating herself into his life and his case and advocating for him. One of the most fascinating stories I've ever read. Okay. The fourth story is the most troubling. One of the most troubling stories I've ever read. And it's about a teenager who the author became involved With And when I say involved, she was studying her, interviewing her for this book. And this is a teenager who became so deeply involved in the online fandom of the Columbine killers that she ends up planning her own mass shooting. And I didn't know there was anything like this out there on the internet, that there was an entire subculture of fandom stuff going on. Like, oh my gosh, it was hard to read in my notes. I put, this is like watching a car wreck. I don't want to keep hearing this story, but I can't stop Mm -hmm. listening to this story. It was insane. That story particularly is the author did such a great job of, of giving all the details, all of her thoughts, a really well-balanced look at this girl who was a teenager and what she did and how she did it. And what's going on online is a call to action for parents to stay on top of what your kids are reading and watching online for sure. So I know this sounds like four disjointed stories, but really she tied them all together in a really in-depth study of women and true crime. Mm -hmm. Society, like, well, society as a whole and our obsession with true crime and women in particular. Right. And I really, really thought it was fascinating. I I mean, despite the fact that I wasn't in, as much into the second story, I highly recommend the audio if you can get it. Otherwise, I think it would be just as good straight and strictly print. But if you have any interest in true crime, then I say give this a try. I think that you will learn a lot. And I also will say I didn't know we had a true crime, a true crime all the time oxygen channel. What? You didn't yes. know? Okay. No, I didn't know that. Oh, man. 
Welcome. So, okay. <laughs> so she talks about that. And so it really, I mean, she, it was great. It was really good. It's Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. Did she talk about why it is that women are more fascinated about this? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Because I'm she gave she gave her theories. I was gonna say I have a theory about it or I have what, thoughts about it. Do you want to share your theory? Sure. I just think, you know, we are at every turn so vulnerable. If someone were to come up to me when I'm walking in the city, not a ton I can do. Like, okay, put it this way. Yesterday, I drove downtown. I parked in this parking garage. Immediately, my first thought was, okay, what if someone comes and gets me? You better look around and check, like, and make sure that someone's not running up to get you. As soon as I sit in my car, I lock the doors. I feel like watching slash listening to true crime is a way to kind of learn something. And Mm -hmm. hopefully, I don't know, it makes me feel like maybe I can protect myself, but also in a way to honor the victim's story and remember them and get to know, I guess, a little bit about what happened. Right. Yes. And and you're exactly right. That's one of the theories. I mean, she gives several and kind of talks about what she found in interviewing other experts, Mm -hmm. what they thought. Mm. But one of them is that women have a greater need, which we do, to feel like we're in control of our environment. Mm. Mm. And we we, we have a greater need to be safe when we're walking, you know, in a parking garage. Yeah. In fact, I was freaked out because I was like, I didn't realize there were so few cars around. And I'm like, oh, gosh, what if some, you know, this is no one else is in this garage right now. What? It's just me. So. Right. Super fascinating. Yeah, I'll definitely read that book. I have it on audio. I think I got it a while ago, maybe a year or so ago. I don't know why I didn't read it, but I'm excited. Yes, I think I think everybody could take something from this. Mm-hmm. I really do. I really do. It was Plus, good. I love the Manson. Fa- I mean, OK, I don't love the Manson family, but right. that story absolutely fascinates me. I'm going to say, even though I feel like we're going to link so much in this episode, there are, Mm -hmm. there's a series of episodes from a podcast called You Must Remember This. If you are at all interested in the Manson family murders, I could not recommend this series. There's like maybe three or four episodes in You Must Remember This about the Manson family. Oh my goodness. So well done. I was like baffled and blown away by this little kind of presentation of who they were. And that's how I really got my introduction. Did you say that was a podcast? Yeah. The podcast is called, you must remember this. Okay. I don't know why that particular story has not really held any interest for me, but you might be really interested in this because, uh, what this particular woman did when she became obsessed with Sharon Tate's family, Mm -hmm. when it's insane. Like the her level of obsession, it was. Oh, I need to it see. It was kooky. I need to see. Yeah, mm, so that okay. that's a good. One. I mean, really good, really, really good. Okay, what's your third book? Okay, so we're gonna, I guess, continue on a true crime kind of weird theme because my third book is called "The Organ Thieves: The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South" by Chip hmm. Jones. Okay. I found this book randomly. I was cruising Scribd to see if I could find something fun to bring. I don't know that I'd call this fun, but (laughs) I would call it fascinating. And what jumped out to me, of course, was the title, The Organ Thieves. And I'm like, okay, that alone is enough. But then to see it was in the segregated South, I'm like, okay, tell me more. So the short of it is that in 1968, Bruce Tucker, a black man, went into Virginia's top research hospital with a head injury and had his heart taken out of his body and put into the chest of a white businessman. Hmm. Okay. Okay. 
And that's the pretty salacious summary of what happened. (laughs) This book starts out with a fabulous introduction to set the tone. You are just sucked in from the very beginning. It's worth mentioning that I did listen to it. And the narrator is J.D. Jackson. J.D. Jackson. Oh, he's so good. When I saw that he narrates, I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I don't need to know anything else. The author is a journalist who uses Bruce Tucker's story to expose the horrifying inequity of his death and the deaths of other people whose bodies were used for science without their permission. Because that's the crux of it. Bruce's family was not contacted. They made no effort to contact them. They stole this man's heart. The circumstances surrounding his death reflect the long legacy of mistreating African-Americans that began more than a century before with cadaver harvesting and worse. This book had a lot to it. It, of course, is the traumatizing story of Bruce, but it also talks about how his death led to the courts creating the definition of what actually constitute as brain dead. When is a person by law dead, essentially? You also get into the trial because Bruce's brother, William, ends up suing the hospital. He works three to five miles down the road from where he was, and Bruce had his brother's business card in his wallet, and they did not contact him. And the only way that this man found out that his brother's organs were harvested is because the undertaker told him so. The hospital did not tell us. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. Horrible. It made me want to tattoo my husband's phone number on my arm. (laughs) Because I'm like, what? The man who was a lawyer in Bruce's case ultimately becomes the first African-American governor in the U.S. But before all of that, he really decided to take this case on because he felt called to represent those who were in danger of being left outside of the system. He kind of saw himself, I think, a little bit in this case. And I won't tell you how it ends, but the book itself also goes into the history of medical schools and how they competed with one another to get bodies to use for their, yes, right. You don't think about this, but then I sat back and thought, well, duh. I mean, naturally, right. Physicians have to human anatomy, like you are have to use dissection to figure out what's going on. But grave robbers used to steal the bodies of black slaves and poor white people for science. This is a thing. Wow. Now this book. So naturally, if you haven't figured it out already, this book might make people a little squeamish because they do go into pretty explicit detail about organ preservation and surgery and other things that are medically related. But I thought it was fascinating. Honestly, I guess I'd never thought about heart transplants before and didn't realize that it's a relatively new development. The first successful heart transplant anywhere in the world was in 1967, though the patient died a few days later. This gave me a ton to think about, about racial inequities in healthcare, about ethics of healthcare, about medical training. And it all came down to this man's previously untold story. Like I said, I listened to it. Highly recommend the audio. I will say this could have been about maybe 50 pages shorter and it would have been great. It was 400 pages. Some of it I was like, all right, this feels repetitive. There was this odd epilogue that included the man's son. The author tried to talk to him, but the the son didn't want to talk to him. And I'm like, now I feel kind of icky about this whole thing. Like now I'm oh. like, oh, maybe they didn't want his story told. But it, you know, it was 47 years ago, but I'm not, I don't know. It made me feel strange. Still, I recommend it though. It was The Organ Thieves, The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South by Chip Jones. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm glad you brought one that I've never heard. So I think it's probably very under the radar. It seems pretty under the radar. There's like 600 reviews on Goodreads. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. what the heck? That's- but. That's under the radar. Oh, good. 
All right. That's really fascinating. And what if that's, could that still happen today? Oh, sure. I'm sure. Well, the thing is, I mean, that people could, or that your organs could be taken uh and, and put somewhere in somebody else's body without your, your family's permission. Well, I think yes, that it can be, but I think specifically what happened in this case that I forgot to mention, Bruce was sitting on a wall and he was hanging out with his friends and he was, they were drinking. It was like after work, whatever. And that's where he fell. And he got this uh, brain traumatic brain injuries. He fell off this wall, but he had booze on his breath. So they assumed, and, and I don't know what happened to his buddies. Like, Hey, why didn't you like come with him? I'm not clear on that, but they smelled alcohol in this man's breath, saw that he was a black man, thought, okay, he's a derelict. He's not, you know, he probably doesn't have any family. He probably doesn't have, what they actually uh. said was they thought that his family didn't want to pay for his care. That's why they weren't coming to see him. They thought they they had no confirmation. This book, I was writing notes. I was writing notes and I was like cussing them out (laughs) in my notes. I'm like, are you crazy? So to your point, I don't, they didn't, they did talk a little bit about what the laws are today, but not in total clarity. I would Mm -hmm. hope that they would like have measures in place to prevent it. But yeah, to, if you can't get identified, like, who knows what'll happen? Because ta- wow. the thing is, timing is of the essence. So, you know, the body can't be dead for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. Otherwise, you can't use those organs. But anyway, right. this book was fascinating. Freaked me out, but like also very, very educational. Okay. That's a great one. All right. Oh, take I... us home. Now I know what time it is. This is the book you've been wanting me to read. I am so excited to bring this and I'm going to cu- try to keep it short. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs> no, are... I am. No, I am for real. Okay. I have to tease it though. What I'm bringing has been called one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, BBC, USA Today, CNN, Shape, and Pop Sugar. Okay. That's a a wide range. That's a a wide range. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's chatter. The voice in her head, why it matters, and how to harness it by Ethan Cross. Have you heard of it? I'm smiling. I have heard of it, but I'm like, oh, this book is for me because in my brain, there's (laughs) 30,000 things going at all times. When I say I think this, everyone can truly benefit from this book in some way, I'm not exaggerating. Ethan Cross is a psychologist. And when I tell you, like, this is a super smart person writing a super smart book. He is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. Like, I didn't even know there were experts like that specific. So he explores the silent conversations we have with ourselves. He interweaves groundbreaking behavioral and brain research from his own lab with real world case studies from a pitcher who forgets how to pitch. That story was so interesting to a Harvard undergrad negotiating her double life as a spy The author explains how these conversations shape our lives, work, and relationships. He warns that giving in to negative and disorienting self-talk, what he calls chatter, can tank our health, sink our moods, strain our social connections, and cause us to fold under pressure. How true is that? Okay, we'll circle back. But the good news is that we're already equipped with the tools we need to make our inner voice work in our favor. He has very simple, very easy strategies that are often hidden in plain sight that we can use to calm the chatter and give us the power 
to change the most important conversation we have each day, the one we have with ourselves. I cannot tell you how much I love this book. I have only a copy on audio. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Penguin Random House, so much. I have to get that because this was so good. I have already ordered a print copy because this is one of the most perfect books that anyone can pull from, but you're going to want to keep refreshing what you've learned. Like, I'm going to want to pull it off, open it up and see what he said about ruminating, what he said about catastrophizing. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are things that when they can just get out of control, right? I mean, how many times, especially if you're someone that overanalyzes like I do, and it's so easy to go down certain paths. And he talks about our minds and calls them avid time travelers, always hopscotching between the past, the present, and the future, always. And it's constant. That can cause us to get into loops and to spin. And just the fact that what we think about can then affect our physical health, mm-hmm. too. And and the examples he gives and the research he has to back it up. And none of it's boring. He narrates his uh, this book. Oh, he was, yeah, he was great. So you can tell the passion for what he's doing comes through. Um, I just want to highlight a couple things just to give you a little, little sneak peek about what's in it. He has a fascinating discussion of social media. And I mean, we all know the good and the bad of social media, but he talks about how oversharing on social media, what it does in the brains of those doing the sharing and what it does to those doing the reading. Mm. And that was really interesting. And then has a lot of, of talk on placebo effects in regards to thinking that you're getting something when you're really not. And just that thought, which I'm sure you know, Tina, with your background, just just knowing or thinking things, mm-hmm. the way your brain can trick your body. It was really, really interesting. This is a hard book to even, like I could talk forever, but also that gives away too much. Right. So I want to just leave it as this is something that, everyone will benefit from. We all are thinkers in one way, shape, or form. Some of us are better at thinking and moving on and others not so great. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And he did say that we're really not like, there's so much focus on living in the present, which is great in concept, but our brains really are not meant to do that. We're really for survival. We're really meant to to kind of look at all, look at the past, look at the present, look at and try to put it all together. Right, right. We're trying to make decisions. And like, if you think about like, you know, the primitive brain, right? You're trying to stay alive and you have to constantly be worrying about things and kind of planning ahead to make sure you have enough food. Like it, it makes sense. But I also understand why the idea of being in the now is so important because it's very easy to never visit the now. It's just like a passing thought. <laughs> exactly. It's when in, he does a really good job of explaining how that chatter gets out of control 
and how you can rein it back in. I think specifically what I I called Renee earlier this week in a mild panic, just losing it. And I was saying like, it feels like in my brain, it's a highway. We're all trying to get on the highway at the same. All these thoughts are trying to get on the highway and no one can let the other person in so that gets gridlocked. This sounds perfect for me. It it is absolutely. And, And I think you know a lot and I think, but I still think that you'll find a lot mm-hmm. to Ooh. learn. And and of course, I'm going to tease you guys and not tell you what the strategies were because you've got to go pick up the book. But, but when there I are tell strategies. You, That's good. He and at the end, he puts the specific strategies in a concrete, uh, I'm assuming like a PDF form. But when I get the print book, I'm just going to turn to the back and like maybe on a certain day be like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. They're really easy. There are probably things you already know, but maybe you you don't even think about applying uh-huh, exactly. to your life. Exactly. And I'm sorry for the tease, but you've got to go get the book. It's Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It by Ethan Cross. Ooh, okay. I got a lift. Yes, I definitely am going to get that one. I feel like I, I need Good. to purchase it already. I'm Just from that, I'm like, all right, I need a print copy. Yeah, I think I think print and audio. I mean, audio is great, but you, you're going to want the print to refer to. Okay, all right, all right. Well, thanks good. so much. Uh, those were fun. I those were really fun nonfiction. Yeah, um, I'm glad we did. Th- I'm glad we did this. Me so too. we'll do it again someday. All right, you want to share your shelf edition? Yeah, let's do shelf editions. Okay, my shelf edition was brought to me by a friend, and it's one highly anticipated book that I have for 2022. And that is I Must Betray You by Ruta Septis. Brought to me by Tina. Oh, I'm the friend. I'm the friend. Oh, brought that's to so me good. Physically, physically and literally brought Yay. and handed to me last weekend. And I was so, so, so excited. I loved Fountains of Silence. I love Salt to the Sea. I have been dying for this book. I Must Betray You. The setting is Romania, 1989. Communist regimes are crumbling across Europe. 17-year-old Christian dreams of becoming a writer, but Romanians aren't free to dream. They are bound by rules and force. Amidst the tyrannical dictatorship in a country governed by isolation and fear, Christian is blackmailed by the secret police to become an informer. He's left with only two choices— betray everyone and everything he loves, or use his position to creatively undermine the most notoriously evil dictator in Eastern Europe. Christian risks everything to unmask the truth behind the regime, give voice to fellow Romanians, and expose to the world what is happening in his country. He eagerly joins the revolution to fight for change when the time arrives. But what is the cost of freedom? And that is I Must Betray You by Ruta Septis, coming February 1st, 2022. Oh, I'm so glad. I so, I just remembered the author. You mentioned her before on the podcast. I don't, mm-hmm. I've never read her. And I was like, you know what? I feel like Renee might like this. And when you told me it was your like most anticipated book of 2022. Well, like, not most. One of the. One of. The most, most has to go to, to paradise. Uh-huh. But this was on my list 
after Two Paradise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like Two Paradise and everything else, but this was on there. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Oh, for sure. Yes. Oh. All right. What is your shelf edition? Okay. My shelf edition is a book that came to my house. I love unsolicited book mail. So I thought I would bring it and share it with you all. It doesn't come out until April of 2022, but it's called Things They Lost by O'Query Odour. And it's from Scribner. What I loved about this is that it reminded me of the book, The Girl with the Louding Voice, which I really loved a couple of years ago. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give this one a chance. Also, this is a debut, which always gets my eyes on it. And it's basically a story that is woven with mystery and magic. And it tells the story of a lonely girl living in a small African town. And what she's going through is trying to find her identity and free herself from her mercurial and charming mother. So she's super lonely. It sounds like she might get raised in her grandma's house. And then one day she finds a friend, but she's still always fixated on her beautiful mom. And it kind of sounds like there's a little bit of magical realism built in here, which I'm always like, Mm. all right, if it's done well, I can kind of go with it. But it sounds pretty interesting. It also sounds like she is trying to continuously get out from under the shadow of her, you know, kind of larger than life mother. And it's said that Things They Lost is a stunning and unforgettable debut novel that unfurls the dizzying dualities of love at its most intoxicating and all-encompassing. So Mm, I love mother-daughter stories. And again, this one sounded pretty good to me. So this is Things They Lost by Okwari Odur. Okay, great. All right. That's it for today. We thank you for spending a part of your day with us. Links to all the books mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us by following us wherever you listen and by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It gets our podcast out to new listeners and grows our audience. And don't forget, if you would like exclusive bonus content, you can join us over on Patreon for $5 a month. Feedback and questions about the show can be sent to booktalketc at gmail.com. You can connect with us both at BookTalkEtc on Instagram, Tina at TBREtc, and me, Renee, at It's Book Talk. Talk to you next week. In the meantime, remember, everything's better with books. <laughs> I this is why. Oh my okay. God. There are two kinds of people. There are planners and there are pantsers. I think Renee is a very good pantser. She can have high-level detail and just roll with it and tell a great story. I have to have a verbatim script out. Otherwise, I, I that's what you get. <laughs> Dang it. I thought I could be impromptu.